Well, good morning, church. It's good to see all of you. Um, it's always a blessing to get to worship with God's church on the Lord's Day. Um, I'm always reminded every time I stand in front of um, our church in Woodstock um, that we're just a, a, a tiny part of the, the church of Christ that's global and throughout history. And so even though there's a lot of new faces, I love that what um, bonds us together is the shared foundation on um, the blood and work of Jesus. So I love getting to be with you um, this morning. So uh, I'm grateful for Austin's um, short introduction of me as well. Um, my wife here, Tiffany, is uh, on the front row. You might have seen a little four-year-old um, girl. That's our daughter, Ada. Um, our son, Levi, was not able to make the trip with us um, this week, and he's a teenager, and so teenagers have lots of activities and things. So um, he's, he's back home, but we're super blessed to, to, to be here. We're super blessed to um, be able to experience um, church with you. And I love your beautiful sanctuary. When we came on the campus, we were like, this is such a beautiful place. So thank you so much for having us. Um, we're going to be opening up our, uh, our scriptures. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to preface and say, um, I'm going to ask for your patience because we actually have a, a chunk of scripture we're going to read together. Although I'm going to argue that the most important thing you're going to hear this morning is not anything that comes after those scriptures, but is those scriptures. Um, so if you would, we're going to be we're going to read just to just to um, refresh in our minds this key passage that has been kind of the foundation for this series that you've been in from Exodus 34 five through seven. We're going to read this together. Um, You can just, um, if you have your scripture in front of you, you can read along in your heart as I read aloud. And then we're going to go to a New Testament passage. Um, But let's read this, um, this passage from Exodus 34 together. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And that word actually there was probably better literally translated as to the thousandth generation. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, our next reading is going to come from John chapter 9. Listen to this moment in the ministry of Jesus. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God may be displayed in him. We must work the work of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit in the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, 
Then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, and he anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes. I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said he is a prophet. The Jews did not want to believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, ask him. He's of age. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've already told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, He could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? So they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe And so he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. I want to start with a story. A couple months ago, our family um, bought a piece of property in the town we live in, the town of Woodstock. And we have a desire to build a home um, on this piece of property. 
And as a result, we started going through the process of selling our current home and moving our belongings, our children, our life all the way an hour north to a town called Jasper, um, to the house that I grew up in. And so as a result, we've been making this commute every single day. We've been uh, doing life in two cities, and uh, it's been amazingly chaotic. But on one of these days, when we were coming back to Woodstock, my daughter starts saying in the car that she's not feeling well. Well, if you know anything about toddlers, when they're telling you they're not feeling well, that's already like an hour past when they should have told you that they weren't feeling well. We're like threat level midnight. And she starts saying her stomach's hurting, and we're like, oh no, we're about to have a very unpleasant experience on the freeway, uh, which could be uh, not so fun for everybody. So I'm just following the course of traffic, and I'm reaching into my glove box. I have this like um, little, uh, you know those bags in the back of a plane seat for when you get sick, right? I have one of those in the car, and I'm trying to find it, driving, and uh, Tiffany's helped me trying to pass this bag back to her. Well, we get it to her. I go through the light. As soon as I go through the light, I see the lights behind me. The fateful, you know, not the normal, you know, oh, there's just somebody with headlights behind me. The police lights, right? And I go, what am I getting pulled over for? I pull over. At this time, my daughter has to go and actually go be sick in the bathroom. So I open the door, and I'm like, oh, goodness, this officer's going to think I'm coming out to storm him. And I'm like, my four-year-old's sick. Can she go to the restroom? He says yes. Anyways, I discover that I'd run the red light, and I didn't even know. You know, I had a kid about to throw up in the back seat. I'm trying to get stuff back to her. I'm following the course of traffic. I said, all right, well, officer, I don't have any excuse. I ran the red light. So he goes back to his car, and he, and he comes back to me. He says, sir, I'm going to um, give you some grays um, for the red light. But I noticed while I was running your registration that you're late on your registration. So I'm not going to give you a ticket for the red light, but I'm going to give you a ticket for your registration. I thought that was mercy at the time until I got the fine. <laughs> And I realized that I wish I would have gotten the fine for the red light in our town. Not even a couple months later, my wife Tiffany is taking the kids to school, and we're running late, and we have this long uh, commute. And in, in short, Tiffany likes to travel at a different speed than me on the interstate. Um, I, I like to, to, to get there um, with the speed limit prescribed. Um, Tiffany sometimes sees those speed limits as suggestions, and as a result, gets pulled over, and the officer is really kind. He sees that we have kids in the back, and he gives her a ticket, and she goes to pay her ticket, and I can't help but feel how unfair it is when I see how much she had to pay for her ticket, which I would argue was for a crime that was far worse against society than my crime. <laughs> right? And yet our fines were so different. And as I re have reflected on that experience, has anybody else fe felt that, fe that feeling of this is not fair? I see a couple hands. You know, there's something in that feeling that leads us towards this, actually a holy righteous desire 
for this broken world that we live in to be fair. That feeling even a four-year-old gets when she says it's not fair. There's a desire in us because of whose image that we bear, that we desire a world that's fair, that's equitable, right? When something happens, when the brokenness of this world, either through decisions we make or decisions of others, comes to light, we, we have this sense, this feeling that this is not right. You know, in, 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 in the series that, that we've been in, we're arriving at the end of it, and what we're exploring is this attribute of God's character in which he's just, right? And the word justice in our culture has a lot more of a, 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 a vindication element, a retribution element. When you think of all the films throughout film history that have been filmed on justice, think of some of the classic John Wayne justice films. We have evil characters. We have good characters. We have people holding the line against the villain. But that looks a lot different in God's culture. Justice looks a lot different in God's culture than it does ours. Consider this verse from Zechariah, chapter 7. Thus Yahweh of hosts says, judge with true justice and show loving kindness and compassion each to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the sojourner, the afflicted. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. This word for justice in the Hebrew is a, is a word that's, a, that's called mishpat. Okay, mishpat. And though there are moments that we read in the scripture that, it, that it, when it comes up, it's speaking about some retributive justice, right? Some payment for crimes. It predominantly, predominantly is used in a restorative sense. It's used in a sense of God giving us a picture of what it looks like to restore our fellow man um, to a place of honor, to a place of where that, that person has a voice, that person is... Um, treated, treated fairly. And so this concept of justice in God's culture has predominantly for us and how he prescribes it looks a lot more like showing love and kindness and compassion than it does giving out, dishing out punishment for crimes. So why does justice resonate with us so much? Why, does, why, do, why do these movies that are on, built on justice and, 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 and you know, these characters that, that stand for justice, why do they make billions of dollars? Why, do, why is, you know, going all the way back to reading the Hardy Boys, why, why, do, why are we obsessed and wired um, to see that the, the wicked don't escape punishment and there, there's maybe a possibility of a world where the innocent are free from calamity from death, a world that's fair, it's, it's because our just God has that attribute in his heart. And as people who bear his image, that's something that resonates with us. And so in, in order to best understand God's heart for justice, I want, to suspend, I want us to spend some time journeying through that New Testament passage that we read from John 9 in order to view the perfect judge, Jesus, God in the flesh, and I want us to watch and respond to how he delves out justice. 
So to kind of set up this passage, Jesus is leaving, in the beginning of this passage, Jesus is actually leaving the temple, having been rejected by the Pharisees. And as he's leaving, he sees a man who's born blind. And the sight of this man presses on his disciples, and they kind of have this question that's inspired by a very logical desire. Um, why did this happen? Why is there a man born blind? Right? This age-old question of, why is there pain and suffering happen to this person? This person was born this way. Whose fault is it? So the disciples, in their minds, they have this idea. Someone must have sinned in this man's family. And in this view, when they think of God being just, they're thinking that God's weaponizing the curse, weaponizing this man's blindness in order to judge sin in his family. You know, I, I wonder, as I was reading this passage, if sometimes we ask a similar question. When we see someone who's disadvantaged, when we see a homeless individual, do our thoughts go to compassion or do our thoughts go to this? What did this man do in order to end up where he is? Which, which thought comes from our heart first? I think if you're honest like me, often the question like the disciples is what comes out of us first. This, per- this person can't be disadvantaged because of a broken world and a broken system or things that occurred to them that were outside of their control. This is America. Something must have happened in this man. A choice must have been made that resulted in this. You see, when we take that thought the disciples have or our, our, our own thought and our own heart, when we take that to its end, when that's directed towards others, it really makes us calloused, not compassionate people. And when it's directed at ourselves, what did I do to deserve this? I'll be honest, some, in moments of suffering in my life, I've thought, like Job, what did I do, right? Think of Job's friends. What have you done in your life? What's happened? But when we direct that even at ourselves, this question makes us despair, angry, and not hopeful. But look at Jesus' response. This is not because of someone's specific sin. In fact, if Jesus was going to answer it literally, he could have said, yeah, the person who sinned was Adam. That's who sinned, not this man's parents. But it's not because of someone's specific sin, but look at this really hopeful passage. In fact, this is kind of a confusing one. Jesus says, but it's so that the work of God might be displayed in him. The work of God might be displayed in him. This man was born blind, lived a life of blindness so that the work of God might be displayed in him. Because of the sin of Adam, sin and death fell on all of us, but God's great mercy has this story that he ordains the tragedy in our life to display his glory. That he makes manifest his goodness to us in our life pains. See, the tragedy of this this man's life till this point isn't just his blindness. Living in an agrarian society where you have to work to earn money, you have to work with your hands, you have to have your faculties about you. Living in this society with a handicap is suffering. There's no Braille at this point. There's no seeing eye dogs. There's no special needs schools. 
There's no way to care for oneself except by begging, relying on the charity of others. In a society that, <laughs> that's also poor and has strong views on being ceremonially clean, this man can't even do what's necessary to clean himself to the standards of his society. And as a result, he has understandably resigned himself to a life of darkness. Do you know what we don't read in this, this moment is this man actually crying out for Jesus. We don't see that at all. There's other moments we see that, right? We see someone who's afflicted who says, Jesus, I need you. You know, son of David, help me. We don't see this at all. We see a man resigned to a life of darkness who is not calling out for help or seeking Jesus. But on this day, Jesus has come to him. How many walk by this ceremonially unclean man, spitting on the ground in disgust? Yet this time, the one who spits doesn't do so out of disgust, but in mercy. See, his creator, in the flesh, the one who formed Adam and Eve from the clay, is once again pleased to bring new life from the dirt, covering the source of this man's suffering with a salve from the mouth of God. In answering the call of Jesus, no longer resigned to sit in darkness, he symbolically will go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent, in emerging a new man with new purpose, sent on a new path, no longer lost in darkness, but with, an op- with opened eyes to see the light. I want, to know, I want you to know, we're going to connect this to God's view of justice and how that affects us, but it's really important that we walk through this moment. Because Jesus tells us at the very end of this passage that there's actually, he's actually carrying out God's justice at the very end. But I want us actually to pause here for a moment and reflect. I don't know if you're like me. I grew up in the church. In my conversion experience, I wouldn't call it... Um, <laughs> I wouldn't call it miraculous in this sense that I, I had lived a life in a specific, I was young, I was eight years old when um, my father walked with me on what it means to follow Jesus, to give your life over to Jesus, to believe in Jesus. In many times when I read these miracles, I find myself kind of longing for a, a different story And a couple months ago, the Lord revealed something to me that I want to share with you because I think actually it's something that helps us return to the joy of our salvation. That's this. This story is no less miraculous than your story. No less miraculous than your story. You were blind without Christ. You were blind. Born that way because of the sin that has come down from our first father, Adam, who sinned. And Jesus found you wherever you were. Some of us journeyed for a long time in that blindness before we met our Jesus. Some of us only a short time. But Jesus still came to us. He found us. He healed our affliction. If you believe in Jesus and you're sitting here and you are his, you are in his covenantal order, this is your story too right? The line of one of the most famous Christian hymns, Amazing Grace, I was blind, but now I see. That comes from this story. 
We all sing that because it's true for all of us. And I just wanted to, as I was preparing this, as I was reading through this passage, I just want us to take 10 seconds and just reflect in our hearts before we go any further, thanking the Lord that he found us. Just, I'm going to invite you, just, let's just take 10 seconds and quietly tell our, ourselves and just reflect in gratitude on God's miracle in our own life. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you do in our life. So at this point of the story, I think it would be safe to say we would think that, wow, like, this story's done. Man was blind, now he's healed. But his troubles are not over, sadly. The Pharisees come into the picture. They're the religious court of law. Now he's pulled into a religious court of law, and they are blinded by their view that that essentially that man was created for the Sabbath, so therefore Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. This can't be an act, the miracle from God. They call in the man's parents, who, by the way, can you imagine how heartbreaking it is for your parents to not even defend you? His parents don't defend him. They're scared. So this man has, has had no, he's, he's had to, he's reviled by everybody, sitting outside the temple, begging for money, and, and even when he's healed, his parents don't even stand with him. Every time the man is asked a question by the Pharisees, he responds in truth, but that's not enough for them. He doesn't utter one lie. And instead, at the end of his exchange with them, it says they reviled him, and then they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out yet again. The blind man who was cast out because he was ceremonially unclean is now, once he's received his sight, he's also cast out, but this time it's for telling the truth. Reviled as a sinner, reviled when he was blind, not defended by his own parents, cast out even as a healed man telling the truth. Does it seem very fair? In fact, of all the courts in the world, we would think the one court that's founded on the Torah should be the place that this man would find hope, but instead he finds judgment. We're continuing down this path of seeing how God's view of justice and judgment is so different than human beings. From the disciples, from the Pharisees, from his culture. And I love this at the end of the story. Jesus, having heard that they cast him out, he goes out and finds him. How comforting is it to know that in our moments of need, Jesus comes to find us? There is this like innate pressure in us, and I think it's because we're geared towards wanting to work our, like earn our salvation, that we think that it's, it's on us to be the initiator to find God. If we feel far from him, we need to go do something. I love moments like this in the scriptures that remind us that Jesus is, is living and active that our God is actually working on our behalf. He comes and finds us. And in fact, the very message of the gospel is not that we have to build a ladder to God, but he is the one who comes down to us, right? What do we just sing about? Christ from heaven coming down to us, making himself known to us. 
And I love this. Jesus calls him to believe that he is the Messiah. By the way, he hasn't actually seen Jesus face to face until this moment. This is his first time. Like Jesus tells him to go wash and then Jesus disappears. (laughs) This is the first time he's actually gotten to see Jesus face to face. And then we get this statement from Jesus. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. So here stands Jesus, the perfect judge, literally justice incarnate, revealing that those who receive him will be healed while the judgment on those who reject him is that they will receive the darkness that they seek. Right, you remember the beginning of John, John 3? We get this picture of um, that, G- that God came into his own, but his own rejected him. And Jesus, when he's having a conversation with Nicodemus, he says this. He says, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So here stands Jesus saying, he's saying, for judgment I came into this world, those who do not see, who admit that they need me, they will find sight. But those who claim to see, they're gonna receive what they really want, which is darkness. Now I want us to go back to our Exodus passage. The Lord the Lord, a God, of merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast loves, love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, and this is confusing when we first read this passage. This is why I wanted to go through John 9 first. It's going to almost sound like we're undoing everything we just said, okay? <laughs> because literally right before, right, right, we just read, he forgives the iniquity and transgression and sin but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You're like, wait a second. This seems to be a little off. Is God forgiving? Or is God not forgiving? Here's what's happening. By the way, at the mount of the foot of Mount Sinai, which Moses, by the way, the reason he's having this interaction with God is because the Ten Commandments have been broken, <laughs> and God's like, I need you to come back so we can rewrite them, because, um, you know, most, Moses threw them down in a moment of anger, so Moses comes back, and God's at, God, God's at Mount Sinai talking to Moses, and he's laying out the truth of who he is as a just God in two paths of living, okay? Two paths of living. One is this, as his people in belief. And two are people who reject him and disbelieve. For those of us that accept him, that receive him, that believe in him, we get to be recipients of the goodness of God. But those of us who disbelieve, who reject him, our guilt remains. And just like Romans 1 reminds us, Do you know what our just God does to those who reject him? He says, that's what you want? You don't want me? Fine. Have it. Many of our view of hell and our view of punishment, you know, we we, we think, think, 
we have this mindset that like it's, it's retribution, it's vengeance. But so often what we see is that our just God, what he does is he gives people what they desire, which is never going to lead them to goodness. It's never going to lead them to, to be fulfilled as he intended for us to be in relation with him. But this is what I love. Look at what he says as he lays out these two passages. God says that he's going to visit the iniquity, meaning he's going to give this generation over to the desires of their hearts, and the, and the, the sins of disbelief are going to be sowed in generations. And we see this. We see some of you come from families where nobody in your family believed, and it took an act of God to take you to, take you to the gospel. I've known people that had to beg for rides to come to church because their family didn't care. Right? But listen to this. This is what's amazing. He says, for those who are mine, I'm going to keep my steadfast love for a thousand generations. Y'all, 30 years is a generation. So God says, for those that disbelieve, iniquity may last 90 to 120 years. But for those who do, 30,000 years of steadfast love. That's incomparable. We don't, this country hasn't even been around for a thousand years. I went to England once. I saw, I saw a, um, a church that had been around since the year 1000. I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is insane. There was places where Romans had sharpened their spears on the side of it and then like musket ball holes from the uh, English um, Civil War. I was like, this is absolute insanity. We can't even wrap our, our heads around a couple hundred years, let alone 30,000 years. No matter the heaviness of the weight of disbelief, the God of justice desires to show steadfast love to the thousandth generation. So what does this mean for us, his people? I'm going to give you kind of a thesis statement, right? I used to teach English to kids. I like thesis statements. A good thesis statement should tell you everything you need to know, right? <laughs> a people secured by the justice of God are a people who overflow justice to the world around them. That's what that, that's all this means for us. What does it mean to be a people secured by the justice of God? Listen to Isaiah 53. He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He bore the sin of many, making intercession for the transgressors. Jesus, who's healing this blind man, is going to later offer up his life for all those who are spiritually blind. And his prayer on the cross for those blind people who are crucifying him is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. If you believe in Jesus today, your life was not bought for free. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The cost of our restoration required that, um, required that our perfect judge take on the consequence of our sin. The justice of God is satisfied in the cross of Christ. It's made fair. For those of us who have been disadvantaged by the fall, we can't meet God anymore. We can't walk with him in the garden. Christ comes and, and destroys that gap for us. And just like the blind man at the pool of Siloam, when we are healed, we're sent. 
So what does it mean to be people of the overflow, right? So my statement again, people secure by the justice of God, that means Christ paying our debt, are a people who overflow justice to the world around them. A people of the overflow means this. Pressing into what God says to the prophet Zechariah, judge with true justice and show loving kindness and compassion to your brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the sojourner, which is like the foreigner, or the afflicted. Do not devise evil in your heart against one another. Receiving from Jesus demands that we go and do likewise. Partners in his restorative work to reconcile people to his care. here's, Here's the hard truth of that statement. If we don't see that overflow from our life, there's something wrong with our belief. There's something wrong with our belief. If I'm not responding and overflowing with the heart of Jesus to others, I don't have a, I don't have a good view of what I received from him. All right, if I come to your house and I say, I paid off your bills. You'll say, thank you. That's awesome. But if I don't tell you what I paid off, I might have just paid, you know, your phone bill that month. But if you find out that I paid all your credit cards, your mortgage, your cars, I paid off your kids' school debt, I paid off every single debt that you have, is your response going to be different? Very different, right? I didn't just pony up $100 to pay for your iPhone. I took on the weight of debt. I gave you back decades. I gave your children back decades, right? So if we're not overflowing with a response to treat others as Christ has treated us, we have a belief problem. We need to go back to that debt that he's paid and ask him to reveal to us the debts that he's done for us. And this is what it looks like to respond to his people. It looks like restorative hospitality. It looks like being an advocate for those that need people to advocate for them. It could even be as simple as this. When you have a newcomer come through your doors, the barrier for entry into the family of God should be mediated by the family of God. Somebody shouldn't have to break their way into our family. We should go to them. We should do what Christ did to us, bridge the gap. It couldn't be as simple as living this way could be as simple as simply having a conversation, inviting somebody else into the family. Hey, come have lunch with me. Tell me about your life. Listening, receiving them. It could be in conversations with your neighbors. A lot of us don't even know our neighbors. Our culture is crazy right now. We're so individualistic. A lot of us don't even have a good relationship where we know what are the burdens of the people around us. It could mean as simple as serving in your children's ministry. I love that Jesus emphasizes care of children all throughout his ministry. Children, they can't advocate for their own needs. You know, when you have a baby, what does that baby do when it has a need? It cries. It can't even articulate it. It needs care from us. Bear with me, I'm going to share something with you that I feel really pressed in my spirit to share with you, and I hope it's not offensive, but I think it's safe to say that as I look around this room, we, are in, we, we come from different generations. We agree with that? And you know what burdens me for your generation 
is that oftentimes the church views the worth of your generation primarily financially. They say, oh, that's the generation that's going to contribute. But can I tell you this today? Your generation's value is not in your pocketbook, but in your presence. Your worth, we, the younger generation needs you. We need to see what it looks like to follow Jesus in decades of life. You're not relegated to this side of your contribution now is just simply holding on to tradition and paying the checks. That's, that's, that's a lie, an absolute lie. Your generation has so much to offer. I love that. I love that there's no point in our life with Jesus that we've gone past our usefulness to his kingdom. Our Jesus, who's eternal, looks at every moment of our life as something useful to contribute to the work he's doing. God has purpose for you. There's no mistakes in your life. There's no age limit on that usefulness. God loves to use his people. You're secured by the justice of God. He's paid for you. He's found you like this blind man. He's given you eyes to see. Let's live out that new creation living by being people who now can see and see those who we can carry the justice of Jesus to, that we can carry the promises to. Let's be a people of the kingdom who don't look at the outside but look at the heart, who don't judge like the world judges but instead have the eyes of the spirit. But where that starts is in our relationship with Jesus, receiving that from him first and then living out of that overflow. Let me pray for us. Dear Father in heaven, we're so thankful for all the work that you've done in our life, Lord. We pray that you would be patient with us as we still struggle to see its depth and how much you've done for us, God. We just pray for deeper hearts of gratitude. We thank you that you esteem us, you love us as your own children. We just pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.